0: Hello, and welcome to the June 2008 edition of the Harvard Medical LabCast, Science That's Changing Your World. This podcast is brought to you by Harvard Medical School's Office of Public Affairs in Boston. I'm David Cameron. And I'm Alyssa Neller. And this month, we're going to be looking at the relation between our brains and our eyes.
1: One researcher is using art that gives the illusion of movement, or op art, to shed light on this problem. Another scientist is mapping the development of facial recognition in children,
0: And a new paper sheds light on the billions of microbes flourishing in, and all over, you.
1: But first, our colleague Judith Montmoney sat down with HMS Professor of Neurobiology Margaret Livingstone to discuss how we perceive art.
2: Dr. Livingstone, could you tell us what first drew you into this field? Years ago, David Hubel and I did a series of experiments looking at how in the primate brain, the processing of different aspects of vision is carried by separate pathways and in order to illustrate this so people could see it right away, I would often insert works of op art into my talk because op art reveals this parallel processing because the strange effects you get with op art, the movement, the shimmering, have to do with the fact that part of your processing, our ability to see motion and depth is colorblind. And then a year or so later, I would talk to somebody and they would say, oh yeah, I remember your talk. And the only thing they would remember about it was the art. And so after a while, I kept putting more and more art into my talks because art really does illustrate how the brain works. And after a while, I just started looking at art for itself, for the, for the sake of finding out what it was that artists had figured out. Op art, though, is very different than the classics, the Monet's, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, most famous, the Mona Lisa. How did you bring that into the mix? Monet actually does use some of the techniques that op art uses to an extreme. Monet is not purely representational. He does a lot of things that are quite tricky and interesting in terms of the way we process visual information. The Mona Lisa I discovered because I was writing this book about art and vision, and my editor said that it was obvious I knew a lot about art, but it, I mean a lot about vision, which I do, but it was equally obvious I knew nothing about art history, and he told me I had to read an art history book. So I was literally reading an art history book when I got to the part about the Mona Lisa. And Gombrich, which I was reading, pointed out this peculiar effect this painting has. And of course, any painting that has a peculiar effect, a visual physiologist ought to look at it with a dispassionate, educated eye and say, well, what is going on here? And what did you find was going on? Well, as Gombrich says, there is something eerily lifelike about the Mona Lisa in that as you look at it, her expression seems to change. She seems to smile sometimes, and she seems to look quite neutral at other times. And Gombrich says that that's because her smile is blurry, so it's ambiguous and it's left up to your imagination. But I noticed that as I looked at her eyes, Her mouth seemed to be smiling, but when I looked directly at her mouth, she wasn't. And if you go back and forth systematically between her eyes and her mouth, you see quite clearly that her expression is directly correlated with how far away from her mouth your gaze is. So that said to me, because I'm a neurophysiologist, that it had something to do with spatial acuity. And then I went and filtered the image and saw that the blurry components, the low spatial frequency components, she's grinning from ear to ear. And in the high spatial frequencies, which is what you see with your center of gaze, She's not smiling at all. So does that mean when we look at a piece of art or we look at somebody's face, we're not necessarily seeing empirically what is there? (laughs) The function of the visual system is not to project a high-resolution image somewhere in the brain. The whole function of your visual system is to extract information about the environment. And so what you see is a misleading question because it's what you're extracting. And artists take advantage of how you extract information from your environment, not just what's out there. Now, clearly, Monet was not a neurophysiologist. Was this something that he just knew by instinct? Empirically. The Impressionists were experimenters. Pairs of them would go out and paint together and see what each of them did differently with the same scene. They figured all this stuff out together and shared information, just like scientists do. They didn't have to know what the underlying neurophysiology was.
3: Charles Nelson, professor of paediatrics at HMS and director of the Laboratories of Cognitive Science at Children's Hospital Boston, uses non-invasive techniques to measure the brain activity of children as they examine faces. I'm Yvonne Rieke, and this is a special report on the development of facial recognition. I asked Dr. Nelson if the ability to recognize faces is innate or something we learn to do with experience.
4: I think the overwhelming evidence is that it's certainly not innate. If if we only have 20 or 30,000 genes in the genome, I think it would be misguided to allocate a bunch of them just for face processing. More likely what happens is that we have neural tissue that have the potential to become specialized, but they only become specialized based on experience.
3: So it seems we do have a special system in the brain that primes us for recognizing faces. How quickly does this ability kick in?
4: There's evidence that newborns can discriminate faces, but what a newborn is primarily focusing on is the arrangement of features. It's not that a face is special, but faces tend to have more elements in the upper half of the face than the lower half, so they're driven by these low-level perceptual features. Over the next few months, it becomes more significant, the actual experience they have with faces. Discriminating one face from another is a very early developing ability, certainly in the first half of year of life. But discriminating facial emotion is more complicated. By a year, infants can discriminate most emotions from one another, but not all. They still have a very hard time with a lot of negative emotion, like telling fear and anger apart.
3: So this was interesting stuff. But I wanted to know what's so important about knowing how face processing develops in children.
4: There are a few answers to the question of why this is important or who cares. One is that there are many disorders of face processing. Autism is one example, but there's a disorder called prosopagnosia where adults fail to, to recognize a familiar face. So one issue is what light can we shed on disorders of face processing by studying development? Because unless we understand how the system gets assembled and constructed, it's going to be hard to understand a disorder in the mature brain. A second reason I think it's important is that it's a basic science question that's very intriguing. Why is there neural tissue that seems to respond disproportionately to faces or certainly differently to faces than non-faces?
3: There's no arguing with that. So I asked Dr. Nelson about the projects he was currently working on.
4: We have sort of two lines of work here. One is we're typically developing infants and children, and one is with infants that we think are at risk for having problems in face recognition.
3: I sat in on one of his experiments. Alyssa Westerland, Dr. Nelson's lab coordinator, kindly invited me to the curiously named Underwater Adventure Room, where four-year-old Arden was about to go on a diving adventure. While Westerland explained the experiment to me and to Arden's mother, Arden got down to some serious colouring with researcher Yelena Spasajevic.
1: We have a number of studies that are working with typically developing children and that's just really sort of giving us a baseline um, for uh, healthy development and face mm-hmm. processing so that we can uh, use that information to work with kids who have different developmental issues. Okay. What we'll be doing for the study today is um, we will be recording brain activity while Arden watches pictures of different facial expressions.
3: I thought to myself that recording brain activity in children as young as Arden must be an interesting endeavour and wondered how on earth they managed to convince these kids to wear these crazy-looking electrode recording nets.
1: Of course, we want to do that in a way that is child-friendly. The way that we get um, kids to wear our wet nets is we talk about going on a diving adventure.
3: I was suitably impressed, and the interestingly named experimental room began to make sense. But I wondered, how did these face recognition experiments in normal kids relate to research on developmental disorders?
4: It's well established that children with autism, as a rule, have impairments in different aspects of face perception. They may not be able to discriminate two faces as well as somebody else. They're not very good at discriminating facial expressions. They can't generalize um, their discrimination, meaning, if they look at you straight ahead and then you look to the side, they may have a hard time knowing that you're the same person. The real question for us is how early in life these impairments first show up. Is it long before the disorder presents itself, or is it something that develops after the child looks like they have autism?
3: So this experiment I sat in on with Arden was part of a pilot study trying to define the different stages in the development of facial recognition in normal infants to compare against children with autism or other developmental disorders.
1: So Yelena will be wearing a diving hat, and Mm -hmm. Arden's going to wear a diving hat. Do you think you're going to wear a big hat or a little hat? Um, A little hat. I think you might be right. You ready for your hat? Is that Arden? Yep. All right, here it comes. That and the hat are going to help you find lots of little mermaids when you're playing the computer game.
3: I had to admit that I admired the creativity of the researchers when it came to getting the children to cooperate. So at this point, I left Arden to her diving adventure. But before I left, I just wanted to know what Dr. Nelson had in mind for the future.
4: There are still a few mysteries that we're trying to grapple with. One is, if if we're correct, that the development of face processing is heavily experience dependent, we need to understand what kinds of experiences children need to facilitate development and the timing of when those experiences need to occur. That's the sensitive period. And the second thing is we're trying to understand the neural architecture involved in this.
0: Take a look in the mirror. What you see is not necessarily what you think you see. No, I'm not talking about some weird glitch in your visual cortex or anything like that. Rather, it's this. Now, what you think you see in the mirror is you, a human being. But the truth is that you are far more microbe than mammal. For every single mammalian cell that has your DNA, there are about 99 microbial cells in you and on you. Dennis Casper, a Harvard Medical School professor of microbiology at Brigham and Women's Hospital, explains what and where these foreign creatures are. Bacteria, viruses, parasites, and they live on the skin. They live in all of the cavities of the body. But in fact, the most enriched area is the gastrointestinal tract, particularly the uh, terminal part of the small intestine and the large intestine, where there's a, an astounding number of bacteria, about 100 trillion, to give you an idea. In a recent paper appearing on the cover of the journal Nature, Casper and his colleague at Caltech, Sarkis Masmanian, found that in mice that modeled colitis and Crohn's disease, a single molecule produced by a single species of intestinal bacterium prevented the inflammation that Crohn's and colitis cause. So that ecosystem of bacteria in your gut just may be an untapped source of potential drug candidates.
1: Well, that's it for this episode. But don't let the fact that you're mostly bacteria get you down. After all, beauty is in the brain of the beholder. This podcast is a production of Harvard Medical School's Office of Public Affairs, and we'd love to hear your comments on this program. Visit our podcast website at podcast.hms.harvard.edu and tell us what you think or read what other listeners are saying. In order to learn more about Harvard Medical School, our academic and research programs, and our affiliated hospitals and research institutes, visit the Harvard Medicine website at hms.harvard.edu.